welcome back to Trennis Magnus, Jab's Reality, a podcasting vacation presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus Lad, and in case it wasn't obvious to any of you, I've obviously had the Legion of Superheroes on my mind quite a lot lately, and perhaps more specifically, I've had the five years later iteration of the Legion of Superheroes on my mind. And I finished up the uh, Keith uh, the uh, Keith Giffen run on the Five Years Later Legion. Finished that up last night, and you know, just as I've you know been reading all of these issues and everything, I've really enjoyed the ability to just read them. You know, I can read comics right now because of the fact that Trennis Magnus punches reality is on hiatus. <clears throat> I can read comics now and not have some kind of a loose expectation of productivity or some kind of an episode coming out of that. And it's really been a lot of fun, you know? And it's not like Legion of Superheroes, like these are the only comics that I've been reading lately. But, or at least, you know, by lately, I mean since I've started my podcasting hiatus, my podcasting vacation, whatever you want to call it. It's not like the Legion of Superheroes are the only comics that I've been that I've been reading. It's just that for some reason, it's been the Legion of Superheroes that's really been driving my fanboy muse lately. And so, when I finished up the uh, last issue of the uh, Keith Giffen run on Legion of Superheroes last night, uh, I don't know. I just had this this wild urge to talk about. Legion of Superheroes Volume 4, number one, which is to say uh, the first issue of the Five Years Later era, I just had a just a real urge to talk about this. Now, I honestly don't think I ever came right out and, and said so out loud, but when I started this podcasting vacation or hiatus or exile or whatever you want to call it, I did so with kind of the implication that I may release episodes of Trennis Magnus Jab's reality periodically just you know as the spirit moves me and all that but generally it's going to be to talk about I guess more general subjects or perhaps stuff that's either too esoteric or, or it's too general maybe it's just too broad maybe it's just too too far outside my customary wheelhouse to be released on Trinus Magnus Punch's reality. And so the idea is, well, I can just, you know, uh, I don't know, prime the pump a little bit, perhaps, and uh, release the odd episode of Trinus Magnus Jab's reality during this podcasting vacation that I'm going through right now. Not necessarily talking about a specific issue of a specific comic book in any kind of great detail or anything like that, but maybe kind of go against my usual preference of talking about things generally, which other podcasters do, and they do it very well, but kind of, you know, break away from the the urge or instinct or preference or just, you know, whatever you want to call it, to talk about a specific comic book and maybe talk more generally about things. And there's an argument I've talked perhaps too generally about Legion of Superheroes, in particular the Five Years Later era, 
And so I thought, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and knock out an episode about uh, Legion of Superheroes Volume 4, Number 1. And, I don't know, just... If you enjoy the Legion of Superheroes, or you, you're just, for whatever reason, interested in the Five Years Later era, I guess you could think of this as uh, kind of a thank you on my part for sticking with me through this hiatus and, and whatnot, because honestly, when you think about it, it is kind of a weird thing to be a member of a Facebook group for a podcast that's not releasing, that's not really releasing new material right now. And so for all of you who have stuck around, and I suppose if you enjoy anything to do with the Legion of Superheroes, consider this a thank you from me to you. All right. So uh, let's get into it here. I'm going to get my iPad going and bring up the first issue. Basically, what I've been doing is uh, buying the issues through the uh, DC Comics app. And so I got to tell you, you know, it's actually been a lot of fun, you know, uh, not just uh, reading the comics, but, you know, I mean, I've used this app a little bit, not a whole lot, but a little bit, and it's actually been, you know, a really pleasant comic book reading experience to read the Legion of Superheroes Volume 4 on this app, or at least get, you know, get the issues through this app. You know, it's uh, it's actually been a lot of fun, and so if you're if you're not using the uh, uh, DC Comics app, um, well, whatever my recommendation is worth to any of you, which honestly, who knows what that might be, but whatever my recommendation is worth, this is a this is a quality product. You guys should consider using this app for your digital comic uh, comic book needs. So, anyway, uh, getting into it though, this is. Legion of Superheroes, Volume 4, Number 1. Cover date is November 1989. Cover artists are Keith Giffen and Al Gordon. Writers are Keith Giffen, Tom Beerbaum, Mary Beerbaum, and also uh, Al Gordon, at least according to the, uh, the sources that I found online. That's what they, you know, that's what they say, but... When you actually look at the, um, you know, the actual, the actual credits uh, inside of uh, the comic book, that's not really what they say. And if I could find the fucking credits in this comic, I could stop vamping for time and uh, be a little bit more specific about it. But it seems that these, these uh, credits in the comic book, or, or the digital comic anyway are giving me no end of fits and here I was just singing the praises of the DC Comics app and now I'm having this problem making shit up as I go along hoping that no one notices that I'm just trying to fill a bunch of otherwise dead air with a bunch of bullshit while I search for answers ah here we go so like I say I think the um, the the credits that are printed uh, in the actual comic are slightly different than what I just said because what I just said because even I've forgotten at this point what I just said uh, is that uh, you know the writers according to this source that I found from uh, Wikia the writers are Keith Giffen Tom Beerbaum Mary Beerbaum and Al Gordon but the credits that are in the comic book itself that is to say the original comic they're a little bit more nuanced than all of that. Uh, basically, what 
what they say in the comic book, the original one, is uh, Keith Giffen, plot, Tom and Mary Beerbomb, dialogue, Al Gordon, co-plot. At least as far as the writing is concerned, right? So it's not quite so simple as to say there was one writer. It looks like there were quite a few chefs in this particular kitchen, which, I mean, I guess in the big scheme of things, is really neither here nor there, but I at least found that kind of interesting. It's remarkable, which is why I'm remarking on it. So anyway, uh, let's see. Now, getting back into the... Uh, ah, hell with it. I'm just going to read the... Uh, the credits directly out of the comic book, since that seems to be what fate wants me to do. So, what the comic book says is Keith Giffen, plot and pencils, Tom and Mary Beerbaum, dialogue, Al Gordon, co-plot, slash, inker, Todd Klein, letterer, Tom McCraw, colorist, Mark Wade, <sighs> editor. The issue itself is dedicated to the memory of John Forte, too often overlooked. I'm going to be very honest with you, not to speak ill of the dead or anything. I have no idea what that is about. And again, no disrespect to the dead. I was kind of too lazy to check into that. So uh, hopefully that just about covers it as far as the credit is concerned. Synopsis for uh, five years later, which is the title of this, of this issue. Synopsis for five years later is as follows. Five years after the Magic Wars, the Legion of Superheroes has been out of action for a long time. But, on the planet Durla, Reet Daggle, former Legionnaire, decides it's time to put the team back together. Meanwhile, on... I'm not actually completely sure how to pronounce the name of this planet. I've heard it pronounced Brawl. But, you know, just to read it, it, it almost seems like the name of this planet wants to be pronounced as Braille, so I don't know, but I don't know. Uh, not that I have any kind of faith in democracy, you understand, but what I've heard most often is Brawl. So I'm going to pronounce this planet, uh, the name of this planet, as Brawl, but just I want to go on record right now saying I'm not actually sure if that's correct, but given the, given the fact that we're talking about a completely imaginary, totally fictional planet, I'm not sure if pronunciations really matter all that much, but to whatever degree that they do, I'm going to go ahead and take sides with the majority against my better instincts and pronounce the name of this planet, Brawl. So, meanwhile, on the planet Brawl, Rock Kryn wakes up after having a nightmare, flashing back to the wars against Imsk, <clears throat> another planet, uh, in uh, the United Planets, another member nation, uh, not member nation, uh, I guess, member world of the United Planets. After spending his morning with his wife, Lydda, he is called to see his old friend, Loomis. Having just been released, and this is, by the way, kind of changing the subject a bit, having just been released from uh, Stockade in the Imskian army, Salu Digby is offered an honorable discharge by her superior officer in exchange for a promise uh, to keep quiet about what went on in Venado Bay. Salu refuses the offer, and so because of that, she is, as promised, dishonorably discharged from the army. Even so, she's thrilled about it. Having finally been cut free of her service, Salu prepares to rejoin Ayla Rands on... <clears throat> and here again, there are a lot of different ways of pronouncing the name of this planet, but the name that was mentioned in Smallville is Wynoth. 
And so that's what I'm going to go with. Why not? So anyway, Salu prepares to rejoin Ayla Rands on Why Not? <clears throat> Rock uh, meets Loomis, and to his surprise, uh, Cam sh uh, shows up as well. Cam tries to convince him, meaning Rock, to help restart the Legion, although Rock insists that having lost his powers in the Brawl Imsk War, he's useless. Cam persists, however, believing that Rock, regardless of his former identity as Cosmic Boy, <clears throat> is the foundation of the Legion. For his own part, after remembering the Legion's beginning, Rock agrees to join up with Cam, who, anticipating his decision, has already arranged for Lita to pack their bags. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, if you've listened to recent episodes of Trinus Magnus Jab's reality, it probably goes without saying that I seriously fucking dig this issue, right? But maybe it doesn't go without saying, and so maybe what we need to do is just kind of take it from the top. So, looking here at my iPad, uh, <clears throat> uh, basically, this... This cover is, in its own weird kind of way, it's a little bit of a mission statement for what the five years later era is going to be all about. And I guess what I mean by that is, if you just look at the cover, the, what you see is there's a lot of browns and a lot of purples and a lot of grays and a couple, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, green here and there. And basically what I'm saying is these are not dynamic popping, eye-catching primary colors. These are kind of soft and dull secondary colors. And yeah, there's kind of a fractured and chewed up uh, Legion ring uh, positioned rather prominently, I would say, on the cover. But even that just kind of has this dull kind of uh, finish to it, you know? It's basically uh, Rock. He's basically wandering around in what looks to be the wreckage of uh, Legion of Superheroes HQ. And as is kind of what kind of becomes a little bit of a stylistic flourish on the part of Keith Giffen uh, during his, his run on the Legion, uh, you can see Rock's uh, scalp, you can see his forehead, but basically from his eye sockets down, that is draped in shadow. And that's an artistic effect, like I say, that Giffen is going to use a lot throughout uh, throughout this, this title. And so, I mean, it's almost to the point where I don't want to go so far as to say that, like, it's overused or anything like that. But it does become a little bit tropey after a while that, you know, here's yet another character with the, you know, the, the great majority of their face kind of swallowed in shadows. <clears throat> And if it sounds like I'm making fun of Keith Giffen, bite your tongue. I would never do such a thing, especially not his work on this era of the Legion. I'm just saying that this, this effect that he's using comes dangerously close to being overused. So, But it's not overused, in my opinion. It's a near miss, but it's not quite overused, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. And speaking of smoking, I'm going to take a, just a quick drag off my vaporizer here. Anyway, cool cover. That's the point. Cool cover. I really like it. This is uh, this is solid stuff. Really enjoy it. Now, page one <clears throat> uh, for this um, 
uh, for this issue. It's basically the star field. Uh, it's mostly black and white, but there's a splash of kind of aqua blue in parts of it. Otherwise, pretty monochromatic, but in this kind of blood red lettering, which I'm not sure if that's a stylistic flourish or what. But considering some of the content of this story, like this immediate issue as well as issues to come, kind of have to wonder that maybe the blood red lettering here is uh, symbolic of something, perhaps. So anyway, that's really page one. And, you know, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds on this, but I will say that as far as, you know, a mission statement, we kind of got one, like I say, on the cover of this issue. But if you are a hardcore Legion of Superheroes fan walking into this, uh, walking into this title, knowing nothing about what what's on the docket here and and what what Giffen is offering, literally from page one, you're kind of thrown for a loop, because instead of picking up where Volume Three left off, page one literally says five years later. So right there. It's basically telling even hardcore seasoned Legion of Superheroes fans, you don't know what lurks between these covers. Buckle up, my friends, because it's going to be a bumpy ride. <clears throat> and indeed, I can only assume that it was. Now, a lot of people, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of a imagination or knowledge or self-awareness or, for that matter, even research to understand that this... Legion of Superheroes title is coming out very squarely after the the run that DC had uh, first on Watchmen and then on The Dark Knight Returns. And the Watchmen influence is pretty clear, I would say, throughout the entirety of the five years later sort of run. But, and I guess what I mean by that is you know, uh, stylistic, you know, uh, elements of, of the story of the universe and goings on with the Legion and all that. But even right down to the nine panel grid that's happening, I can't say all throughout, uh, uh volume four, but certainly for the, the issues that are drawn by Keith Giffen and, to some degree or another by other artists, but really by Keith Giffen, you know, you, you get the nine panel grid. And this is something that I, I honestly think that comics need to go back to, you know, there was a point when this was the way comics were done. It's, I don't want to say antiquated because that make because there's like a negative implication to that, but this is very traditional, put it that way. I mean, the idea of the nine panel grid, that is how comics were done for a long time, literally right from the get-go. Now, we can argue amongst ourselves that, you know, really the reason that the nine panel grid ever existed in the first place in comics is because of the fact that uh, comic books as a form started off reprinting comic strips, which were three panels. So, Three panels fit rather conveniently on a page, and so there you go. There's your nine-panel grid right there. And, you know, maybe there's even some truth to that, but the simple fact of the matter, it, at least for me, is that this nine-panel grid is an incredibly efficient and effective way of telling stories. And 
Speaking of stories, Giffen's approach to writing this series is, especially in this issue, it's very elliptical. You know, you get a lot of middles. You don't really get the beginning of stuff and the ending of stuff so much. And especially in this issue, you don't. You get a lot of middles. Uh, there are, it's basically on, on page one, you could think of it as kind of, as somebody basically watching TV and they're, they're getting sort of snippets of big and important moments in Legion of Superheroes history. And honestly, I mean, this is really done as a bow in, in the direction of welcoming new readers and introducing them to what the Legion of Superheroes had been before showing these new readers what the Legion of Superheroes have become, you know? But even as a, as a seasoned Legion fan, I would imagine that somebody who's a real expert on Legion lore might still appreciate the acknowledgement of Legion history that's going on here. So, but my point in saying all of this is that you were getting the middle of something here. This is basically a documentary, which again is extolling the history of the Legion of Superheroes, but we're getting the middle of it, you know, the middle of this documentary. We're not really getting the beginning of it and the ending of it. We're just getting this little middle section right here and then that's that. You know, all of this arranged in this really snazzy-looking nine-panel grid, and I just eat it up with a spoon. Really dig it. This is good stuff. Now, Tom Beerbaum wrote on his live journal, It's Okay, I'm a Senator, that this is, this this. depending on how you look at it, this is either page one or page two. I choose to look at this as page two. This was sort of a late addition to this issue in the editorial process where somebody said, hey, we need something that's going to introduce the Legion, at least as they were, and just kind of summarize their history a little bit in one page. We need that to kind of lead off this story before we start getting into the blood and guts of other things that are happening in the galaxy right now. And so the end result of that is this, I think, really well-paced, very economical nine panels of that's actually not even nine panels really it's it's seven panels because the first panel and the final panel are basically turning the tv on and turning the tv off the seven panels in between is just a very brief you know quick and dirty sort of uh history of the legion and just kind of hitting the high points of what keith giffen thought were the most salient issues of the legion of superheroes that could be fit inside of seven panels. And so that's what we get. Like I say, it's very economical, very well done. So anyway, moving right along, we get a little bit more of somebody watching TV. It's basically current events and newscasters, uh, after which we get a little bit of culture, you know, just things that are happening in pop culture and sort of the... I guess, consumer world. And then we get updates on uh, Dirk Morgna. And here again, this is really well done, but it also kind of lays out a few, a few things that are, that are going to go on to become very important during uh, Giffen's run. Not necessarily everything, but a couple of things are starting to get rolled out here. A good example of what I mean is, and again, this is just this very elliptical style that this issue is written in. 
this, I guess, technically is page three. At the very top, it says, Latest raid on anti-government terrorists netted 35 suspects, all believed to be in league with Kundish espionage efforts. Science Police Earth staged the raids at the Waste Treatment Center in the Hampton sector this morning. Authorities had hoped to snare Vidar, a.k.a. Universo, believed to be the terrorist ringleader. But the hunt for universe, uh, for Universo now shifts, and that's where it gets cut off by the channel changing, because again, it's very elliptical. We're not getting beginnings and we're not getting endings here. It's all very elliptical. And so the, the next panel here, uh, this would be panel seven on page three. This is, it's basically a picture of somebody that you would think Captain Kirk would probably have a crush on, this green-skinned, green-haired uh, looking chick. It says, the little caption says, sun-drenched playground for those with a chic streak, I assume is what it would have said, but again, it's interrupted by somebody changing the channel. And I kind of like this, that we're getting this, this weird sort of double whammy right here on, on page three, where we get a couple of panels that are basically setting up the fact that there are terrorist organizations of some kind that are active and present on planet Earth and really making life difficult, at least for the science police, to keep the peace and all that. It's big enough that it's led by Universo, a person who's probably very infamous, and immediately that gets contrasted with this just really vapid and kind of self-indulgent. It looks like it's some kind of a, a, a vacation resort that's getting advertised here with the green-skinned woman. And it's, in a weird kind of way, I mean, it, it is important to understand that this comic, this specific issue, Legion of Superheroes number one, it is a product of its time. You know, in the late 80s, there, you know, I, I was a kid back then, but I, I was very well aware of the fact that there was this weird dichotomy that was going on between these weird uh, uh, terrorist uh, uh, attacks that were happening in different parts of the world, uh, wars and whatnot that were happening. And these things were being reported on the evening news. And then the commercials were for beauty and glamour products. And even as a kid, I was kind of aware of the the tension between those two subjects of basically people getting bombed to death in, in other parts of the world. And now a word from our uh, sponsors, you know, uh, I don't know, Revlon or whoever with, you know, beauty products and makeup and shit like that. Even as a kid, I was kind of aware of the the dynamic contrast between those two things. And so I'm not saying that this is necessarily a riff on headlines that were happening on TV in the late eighties, but I'm not saying it isn't either at the very least, as I say, it's rather topical. So moving right along, we, at the bottom of uh, page three, we get this, uh, this, it's basically a talk show with, uh, Dirk Morgna, formerly known as uh, Sunboy, as uh, the guest. And right here at the bottom of of page three, we get 
this, I don't know, headshot, I guess is what these things are called, of Dirk, and he's looking very smug, very pompous, and very self-satisfied. And getting into page four, he's basically giving an interview, like I say, on a uh, on a talk show, and just the tone of his remarks, it makes it very clear that the Legion of Superheroes is a part of Dirk's past. In fact, it's not just a part of Dirk's past. The Legion of Superheroes is basically a defunct concept, you know, and in a weird kind of way, this establishes actually a couple of different things. One of which, like I say, is the fact that the Legion of Superheroes is all but defunct. Number two, that Dirk is kind of sort of embarrassed by his history as Sunboy. And number three, that the Legionnaires or former Legionnaires, in their own strange kind of way, they're sort of like uh, child stars in in the DC universe. You know, they're sort of like young celebrities. And there are some success stories that come out of that, at least superficially, with with Dirk. And then there are some kind of dark sides to all of that. And we're going to be getting to one of those actually before too long. But what you what the reader starts sensing pretty much right away is that, like I say, the Legion of Superheroes is a thing of the past, and not necessarily everyone went on to have a happy and fulfilled life, which is kind of a ballsy direction to take this book, considering the fact that the tone and style of the Legion of Superheroes, at least up to this point, had been one of, I don't want to say that kind of... uh, shiny, happy people, super friends type of type of tone, because the Legion of Superheroes was was a book where characters, even main characters, sometimes died. And that's generally it. I mean, when they died, they weren't coming back from the dead. You know, death was not a temporary inconvenience that slows our heroes down. I mean, this is in, in not necessarily every case, but in a great many cases, this is a permanent condition, you know. And so I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to denigrate what came before, but this issue from the start and then more and more and more with each passing page, this is taking the Legion of Superheroes into I don't want to say dark, but just kind of uh, more serious and kind of dystopic sort of subject matter and really well done. And here again, this is on page four now, here again, um, this is extremely economical storytelling where we're getting the nine panel grid again of somebody watching TV and we're getting a little bit of, uh, a, a little bit of history with, uh, sun boy with polar boy, uh, the general goings on and the, the, the state of things with the Legion and, this is not shiny, happy people, friendly times. This is a very serious galaxy, a very serious moment in a very serious galaxy, a very dystopic moment, one might even say. And so it just goes on from there. Getting into page six, I actually don't really have a whole lot to say about this, except maybe that 
Keith Giffen has a little bit of a fixation for putting mystery characters and robes. And that's a kind of difficult thing to get away with in a Legion of Superheroes comic by virtue of the fact that when you read a Legion comic and you see somebody, this shadowy and mysterious individual in this big hooded cloak sort of a thing and you can't really see his face, the first thing that you're going to think of is the time trapper. And this is a trap that honestly... Giffen might very well have been aware of because he's quick to reveal that this is uh, a, a Reap Daggle, which is to say formerly known as Chameleon Boy. And that's put out there early on. It just kind of makes me wonder if this is something that the GIF was aware of and wanted to address very quickly. I don't know. I mean, there's a couple of different ways of of figuring this out, I suppose. So... Moving right along, though, one of the things that gets introduced uh, right here, and again, this is on page five, this sort of drone or cyborg or whatever the hell this blue-skinned biped is, it, 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 it basically looks very feminine, pale blue skin, no eyes that are immediate, obvious, and prominent. And also quite completely bald. So, I don't know. If you're into bald women, I guess this is the comic for you. I don't know. But this is, again, just a new concept. And honestly, this is something that uh, Beerbomb said that he wanted to delve into a little bit more and explore what exactly these, for lack of a better way of putting it, these drones actually are. And he says there just really wasn't time for it. But, you know, he at least had, you know, two or three or four story ideas in mind, you know, for these drones and nothing much ever comes of it. But we do need to get we do need to get comfortable with the idea of these drones and basically who they are, or at least not so much who they are, but the fact of their existence. So and I'm probably giving this way too much attention at least more attention than it deserves. So moving into page six, uh, we we basically see Marla talking to a drone of his own. And this is a little bit more of a mechanical page. It's starting to set up where things are going to be going and also doing a little bit of world building, again, with this blue-skinned drone. And I don't know, it's just stuff like this. I just I just eat it up. So... Getting into into page seven here, this is, it's a little glimpse of Venado Bay and goings on with that. Basically, Rock flashing back to his experiences during Venado Bay, and we get a little bit of a taste of what happened to him there. And it's all very, here again, it's all very elliptical, and in some in some sense, it's all very uh, I should say impressionistic, you know, we're not really getting, we're not getting the full scope of what happened there, but at least from the outset, you know, we can make a couple of educated guesses about what Venado Bay is. There's not a ton of information that's given away on, on this page. It's all very uh, sepia tone. And as I say, I mean, this is a nightmare that, rock is having so there is a sense in which that 
maybe we're not supposed to take what we see here completely literally, especially considering what's what we see about Venado Bay in issues to come. But the issue, as I see it, is this is a very famous, and at least for uh, Brawl's participation, this is a very a pivotal and historic moment, you know? And in a weird kind of way, I would actually want to compare this in terms, not so much of what happened, uh, war crimes and all these other things that may have taken place at Venado Bay. I'm not trying to cast a negative light onto this, but as I read all of this, just in terms of, you know, the importance of what it was that Venado Bay represented to Brawl and the, and the Brawlians... I get the idea this is sort of their invasion of Normandy, you know, where America's invasion of Normandy is one of the biggest and most um, uh, important moments in all of American military history. You know, if what you're doing is you're setting out to write a comprehensive history of American military history and you don't talk about the landing at Normandy, I'm almost tempted to say, you're not doing your fucking job. You know, I mean, this is, this was a big deal and you can't not talk about this. If you're like, as I say, if, if you're putting together some kind of a comprehensive history of America, uh, of American um, uh, uh, military uh, history, you're not doing your fucking job. If you don't at least touch a little bit, on Normandy and the bigness of that and the importance of it. Obviously it, it mattered quite a bit to the Germans, I would imagine. And I get the idea that what we're seeing here is the equivalent of the importance of the landing at Normandy, the invasion of Normandy from the German perspective, basically Venado Bay is to the Legion of Superheroes Volume 4 as the landing at Normandy uh, Normandy is to IRL, right? And again, there are limitations to this, but I get the idea that Brawl as the aggressor in this war with Imsk, uh, Imsk is to Germany as the aggressor in the war with America, because, you know, they did declare war on America. I mean, that does need to be said. You know, it's not like we declared war on them. So, not first, anyway. Basically, what I'm saying is Germany declared war on America before America declared war on Germany, right? So, and that's what led to the Normandy invasion and the, and brawl in some way or another instigating war with Imsk is what facilitate or precipitated uh the battle of venado bay and so that's what i'm saying with all this and it's a big moment this is as the landing at normandy was the real turning point in the war against germany i get the idea this isn't i honestly don't think this is based on anything this is just like my interpretation of things i get the idea that venado bay was the turning point in Imsk's war with Brawl, right? Where maybe up to that point, it was anybody's fight. Venado Bay is what turned that around. And it became, at that point, not necessarily a done deal, but it was Imsk's, Imsk's 
God, that's a hard thing to say. Imst to lose. So whatever. Imsk was going to win after that. Put it that way. Jeez. Anyway, so moving right along, we get a little bit more development and world building uh, going on with Rock. And this is one of those moments here on page eight where my ignorance of Legion history is sort of working against me a little bit in as much as I don't know if it's a reveal necessarily that Rock is married to Lita. Maybe it is and maybe it's not. That could have been an element of Legion of Superheroes Volume 3, but I wouldn't know because I've never read Legion of Superheroes Volume 3. So this is one of those times when, you know, my ignorance is kind of working against me a little bit. But what I can at least do is admire, again, number one, the very economical and well-done pacing that's uh, going on right here on page eight, but also the art. I really fucking dig Keith Giffen's art. And I think one of the the holdups that I had with the five years later era until really, I would say until relatively recently, meaning like the last month or so, was actually Keith Giffen's art. Because if you do just a cursory amount of research on the five years later era, one of the things that you're going to discover pretty quick from people who are a lot smarter when it comes to art and certainly the the history of Keith Giffen's career. One of the things you're going to find out very quickly is Giffen really did shift up his style a little bit compared to what he'd been doing in volume three, shifted that up very heavily when he started doing volume four and this different style that he started using in volume four, at least for me was a little bit of an acquired taste. Now, just to kind of put all of that in perspective, you know, the kind of art that I like that I always liked seeing in Legion comics was uh Stuart Eminem or uh, 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 Barry Kitson or uh, Jeffrey Moy or artists like that. Basically the zero hour era and the three boot era, you know, and going through there, that was a little bit more in line with the kind of art that I wanted to see from the Legion. And I would think that the reason for that should be pretty obvious. I mean, that stuff is more formative for me in terms of my history with the Legion. But, you know, coming back to all this stuff, as I did like a month or so ago, and working my way through the Giffen run, it really did give me a whole new appreciation for Keith Giffen's art. And in particular, the line style that he uses throughout his work on volume four or in volume four, I suppose I should say. And the, the kind of sketchiness that he uses sometimes and the heavy dense detail that he uses other times, it, it just really works for me. There are very few, and I'm not saying this to kiss ass or anything like that. Cause it's not like the gif listens to my show anyway, or if he does, he hasn't seen fit to let me know about it, but, uh, it's just, this is, this is just something that I've really come to really appreciate. Now, having said all of that, you know, I'm not really here again. I'm not really doing my job. If I don't mention that, as we saw on the cover of this comic where rock's face is partially obscured, uh, by shadow, we see that same effect here on page eight. And I'm not necessarily interested in calling attention to this, this effect every single time it pops up. But if you're following along with me in this comic as I go along, this is something you really need to start getting used to seeing. You know, you need to expect to see this 
a lot more often in the future. So anyway, and Rock and Lita, they have this very happy and kind of not quite playful, but it's sort of playful type of banter with each other. And I get the idea this is very much the sort of relationship that they have with one another. And I'm reading between a lot of different lines here, but what I think is going on here is that Rock probably has a nightmare like this, maybe not necessarily every night, but a lot of nights. He remembers how shitty things really got at Venado Bay. You know, when when the shit hit the fan at Venado Bay and people were just dying left, right, and center, that's something that haunts his dreams, again, not necessarily every night, but a lot of nights. And this is something that's really hurt him on a very deep on a very deep level, you know, and might have been enough to, to break him. But number one, he's rock. So it's not so easy to break him. And number two, he's got, he's got Lita in his life. And she brings that ray of sunshine that even rock Kryn needs in order to get through just one more day. And I get the idea that they have this kind of playful relationship with each other because at least in part, Rock needs that now more than ever. He needs that. You know, he carries a lot of response, a, a lot of personal responsibility on his shoulders goings on with, uh, Venado Bay or before that, uh, getting the Legion, uh, basically getting hounded, legally persecuted out of existence or before that leading the Legion. I mean, this is a guy whose life is all about responsibility and living up to those responsibilities. And I think somebody who fits that kind of psychiatric profile, he needs something that's just sweet and wholesome and innocent and, and fun. He needs something that's fun. And on some level, I think that's part of what Lita offers him. So I don't know. Anyway, so from there, this is getting into page 10 and then going forward. But from there, we start seeing a little bit more of Brawl as Rock makes his way through basically what looks like downtown here. And Brawl, it basically looks, I don't want to go so far as it looks like Berlin the morning after, you know, speaking of World War II, Berlin the morning after, it doesn't look like it's quite that bad, but it's in some pretty fucking bad shape. I mean, this is, this is clearly an occupied planet. I, here again, what I'm inferring from this is that basically the Brawlian world government has been, or worldwide governments, for that matter, as the case may be, have all been deposed. And basically what the Brawlians have been living under is basically Imskian uh, occupation, you know? And in a certain in a certain sense, it's like, I get the fact that technically the Brawlians were the aggressor in this war, but it's like what they're having to live under, the occupation that they're having to live under, it's like... What could they have possibly done to deserve this? You know, I mean, how bad must things have gotten? Or did they get that bad? Is 
is the Imskian government, are they basically exercising a little bit of Victor's justice here? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't think that that ever gets completely explored. So I'm, there's a lot here that's wide open to interpretation, but, you know, having read the entire run and like I say, finishing it last night, you know, one of the things that I kind of found myself wondering was notwithstanding the fact that the Brawlians are the ones who started it. I I can't help thinking that maybe the Imskians have gone kind of hard on them. You know, maybe, maybe the Brawlians didn't quite deserve what's been done to them and done to their planet and all that. So I don't know. It's all in how you look at it. Like I say, so, but one of the other things that's going on here, and again, this is on page, page 10 is that we start getting an, kind of an idea and and here brawl is kind of serving as our surrogate for the entire galaxy it's kind of a, a peephole into the entire galaxy this is a very dirty very run down and just unkempt version of the galaxy you know this isn't the bright squeaky clean future that we used to see in volume three this is a galaxy where shit is falling apart you know, people are running around uh, unkempt, unshaven. They're wearing dirty clothes that have that are covered in stains. I mean, you know, Rock Crin is has got to be one of the most famous people in the entire galaxy. And here he is. His, you know, he's got kind of shaggy looking hair. He's got plenty of five o'clock shadow that's going on. His trench coat is just ratty and filthy. Definitely seen better days. And the world that's surrounding Rock doesn't really look all that much better. And it's basically Brawl is kind of giving us a sample of everything else that's happening in the world or in the galaxy in this moment. And again, it's just really elegantly well done draftsmanship by the GIF. He's just knocking it out of the park, just page after page after page. He just keeps it coming i love this stuff this is great and getting into page 11 you know it's kind of funny i didn't necessarily want to go through this thing page by page by page but as i you know as i flip through the issue just more and more of these pages are just demanding attention but in particular page 11 this is uh again not elliptical although kind of elliptical but it, this is a little bit more impressionistic rock happens to glance over and he sees venado bay scrawled on a wall and, and clearly done by a disgruntled Brawlian. And so from pages, uh, let's see, uh, six through, uh, through nine, we basically get this very impressionistic sort of recounting of what really happened at Venado Bay. We didn't really see all that much of it in Rock's Nightmare, and we're definitely not seeing anything here. It's basically dialogue balloons on a white background that gets progressively bloodier and bloodier and bloodier. And there's an argument that honestly, that's probably the better way, at least to establish the importance of Venado Bay. That's probably the more effective way of setting up the importance of it, of this battle and what it meant to rock on some kind of deep personal level. Like what did he see? What did he go through during this battle? And so this is just a ridiculously well well done page and a very effective way of not so much establishing but embellishing what 
Venado Bay really means to the Brawlians. I just really dig this. Incredibly well done. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to kiss too much ass here, but it's like, I kind of have to wonder how many other artists are capable of doing what, what Giffen is doing here, you know? Never doubt the GIF. So, anyway, moving right along, we we flash over to uh, goings-on with uh, Salu Digby, and this is when we start getting a little bit... M- a little bit of light shown on to goings on with Brawl and now with Imsk. Because up to this point, it wasn't really said that Venado Bay had anything to do with Imsk. This is strictly goings on with Brawl. But now it's getting tied in with, with Imsk. And so what we realize is, holy shit, Brawl went to war with Imsk. Holy shit. Technically, Cosmic Boy was at war, literal fucking war, with Shrinking Violet. That's fucked up. That's how bad things have gotten in the galaxy. That's some of the stuff that's happened during the five-year gap. And I guess just like the bigness of that, I mean... It's kind of understated because, again, this is all done kind of elliptically. We're getting a lot of middles that are going on here. These are basically characters who are picking up on conversations that they've been having with each other for, at this point, it could be years. And so they don't necessarily take the time to introduce subjects. They basically pick up where they left off during their last conversation. And, you know, don't confuse me for a writer, but this is this has got to be just a pain in the ass to write this kind of thing. So anyway, but it basically is made clear right here on page 14 that Salu is making her choices and she's prepared to accept the consequences. She's not necessarily fond of what's about to happen to her, but she knows what the outcome of this is. And so that's fine by her as is, made a little bit more obvious on page 15 this i don't even know what else to call it except an email except email didn't really exist at least not not as a public thing in 1989 which is when this issue would have been written but she's basically sending an email uh salu is she's basically sending an email to ayla rands and She's basically making it clear that, yeah, technically this is a dishonorable discharge, but I'm free. I'm free now. And this is, yeah, I mean, yeah, it it sucks to be dishonorably discharged. You know, that's no fun. But at least I'm free and I, and my, my conscience is clean. So, huh, fair trade, I suppose. So flashing, that's above Imsk, by the way, flashing back to goings on with Rock, on on uh, Brawl, he kind of uh, bullshits a little bit with Loomis. We get a little bit more world building as they walk through what looks like kind of a shantytown or a Hooverville or whatever you want to call this. And it's basically Rock and Loomis. They're, they're catching up with each other a little bit. And times are tough. I mean, if for no other reason, then we, 
we realize as this conversation unfolds on page 16, Loomis lost his right arm. Now, here again, this could be this could be one of those instances when my ignorance of Legion Comics prior to this point is kind of working against me a little bit. It's totally possible that Loomis had no right arm in the previous volume. But I get the idea that he lost his arm during during the war with with Imsk. And I don't know. I mean, geez, that's tough. And he outwardly, he's at least acting all bubbly, you know, Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky and all that. But these guys are kind of war buddies. And what I've noticed is that when when people who served in combat together, when they when they reunite, they typically have it's a, it's a pretty narrow range at least in my limited observation it's a pretty narrow range of types of friendships with each other and one of them is they just don't talk about it you know whatever it was that they saw when they were in combat operations together they both know they don't feel any particular urge to recount that with one another and so they're their ongoing association is based upon the fact they saw some really weird fucked up things when they were in battle together and they support each other with friendship now that they go really fucking far out of their way to base on something else, anything else, anything else other than fighting and killing. You know, they talk about sports. They talk about collecting stamps. They, I don't know. Uh, maybe they they trade recipes with each other. You know, just fucking whatever. They do not talk about it. There's another type that they do talk about it, and they get in the blood and guts of it. And you know, there's a lot of just realness with each other. A lot of very blunt honesty about how shitty things really were. And then the third type that I've noticed, and this is kind of what we're seeing here on page 16, is it's the kind of thing where they have to laugh about it. You know, they joke, they kid and, and everything. They, they are both very keenly aware of how shitty life is. And the only way that they can really process that is to laugh about it, joke about it, you know, because if you can't kid each other about it, it's almost like there's nothing stopping you at this point from going fucking firebombing. And so we choose to laugh, you know, but, and I get the idea that's, that's how Rock and Loomis kind of process their their experiences in the war. And I just, I find this to be just very true, very believable, just very true to life, you know? So whatever happens, happens, and Loomis excuses himself, which is, uh, this is basically Reap Daggle's cue to sneak out of the shadows and basically make make rock the offer you know we need to get the legion back together and rock's issue with that is okay number one i don't have powers number two yeah you know the legion was great you know back in the old days but it's over now and Reap's answer for that is actually, 
I think kind of profound. He says, no, you can't kill a dream. And he knows exactly, I think he knows exactly which buttons to push with Rock. Because he says, remember the dream, Rock? Remember how it felt? And right here on page 21, we get the single page flashback. Again, it's very brief and it's very impressionistic. How Rock... Imra and Garth ever first met each other when they were saving uh, RJ Brand's life and it's all it's all done very nostalgic not quite Kurt Swan but still very nostalgic it's very sepia toned and all that it, in fact in a weird kind of way I would actually want to compare the art as we see it here on page 21 or sorry page 20 uh, compare that it's almost like a cross between Kurt Swan and Todd McFarlane. It's kind of Kurt Swan meets Todd McFarlane, you know? And honestly, this is not a bad way of selling nostalgia that's been tainted somewhat by reality, you know, by the ugliness of of life, you know, and just how unpleasant life can can be at times, you know? And the sepia, the imperfect sepia tones that we're seeing here, is basically that even nostalgia is not as comforting as it used to be, you know? But damn it, it's still there. It's not gone completely. And again, maybe I'm just projecting stuff onto this that isn't really appropriate, but I think this is really powerful. I want to believe this is all done very intentionally, you know? That when we, when we get into page 21 here, with basically going back to the current day, so to speak, considering we're talking about something set in the future, something that's set even further into the future, which is to say Rock Crin's present moment, at this moment, on page 21, it's basically a little bit more what has become conventional uh, art by the GIF, and the colors are a little bit more back to normal. Still lots of greens and and uh, kind of washed out dull golds and dull grays. <clears throat> Excuse me, dull grays, faded purples, and basically a lot of secondary colors is, is what I'm trying to tell you here. And basically Rock's answer is, yeah, fuck it, fine. I'm in. Uh, we'll, we're, we're basically seeing the rebirth of the Legion of Superheroes that's happening right here on page 21. And right now it's only a two-person Legion, but the Legion of Superheroes is back in some way or another right here on page 21. And this is happening over at least Rock's initial protests and I kind of like that you know because Rock he's able to see the bigger picture that yeah he doesn't have his magnetic uh, powers anymore but that's not necessarily going to be a handicap in restarting the Legion and that's not something that gets swept under the rug at least call this a spoiler if you want but at least for the rest of the gifts run that is not magically undone 
he starts off powerless in issue number one. He's still powerless in the final issue that uh, the GIF does. And that doesn't get magically taken away. And I kind of like that, you know, that this basically Rock as the central figure of the Legion. This is being done at this point strictly on his strength of character and his purity of heart. And that as opposed to his, his, I can't even say superpower, but his Brawlian ability to, to control magnetism. And I kind of like that, you know, because it, it, it goes to establishing, there are limits to this obviously, but in terms of importance, I would say that Rock's importance to the Legion is pretty comparable to Captain America's importance to the Avengers. I mean, in theory, yeah, you can have a Legion without Rock and you can have Avengers without Captain America. But when it comes right down to it, the Avengers are going to look to Captain America for leadership and the Legion will look to Rock for leadership. I mean, that's just how things work. And I think Cam is wise for recognizing that and realizing, you know, yeah, technically there, there are rules that say a member of the Legion has to have a power of some kind, but we can maybe bend the rules a little bit. I mean, hell, we had Karate Kid on the team for all those years, and what's his power exactly? So, I don't know. I, I just like it. That's really well done. So, the final page, or at least the final comic book page, is it's basically a conversation between parties unknown and hatching a conspiracy of some kind. And honestly, I mean, there are limits to how much of this I really want to go into right now, other than to say it's happening. You know, this is happening here. So something to keep in mind in the future. And speaking of the future, look, guys, I'm not really sure if I'm ever going to talk about uh, more five years later Legion of Superheroes. Maybe I will. All right. I'm not making any promises here. I'd like to. This is a great title. And I had a serious blast uh, uh, reading it. I may decide that I only want to do, you know, like maybe five issues or six or 12 or something. I may not, I may only want to do the uh, the, the complete gift run. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I haven't really made up my mind on that yet. Um, I'm not even sure if I will come back. I want to, and I'm thinking I might, but I'm not making any promises on that right now. But I do want to say, guys, I just, I really love this issue. And I really love this, this specific lineup, you know, this division of labor with, uh, basically you've got the GIF, the beer bombs, and somewhat Al Gordon. They're basically handling, they, they basically divided up the various writing choices that are going on here. The GIF is doing the pencils. Al Gordon is doing the inks. I just really like that division of labor. And I'm going to be very honest with you. The further away we get, as comics are wont to do, the further away we get from that exact division of labor, honestly, the less I kind of enjoyed the, you know, each su uh, subsequent issue. 
and it was actually to the point, as I say, near the end of the gifts run, that I decided, you know, I don't know if I have any real interest in in finishing uh, this title through to uh, the Zero Hour era and basically leading right into Zero Hour and the, and the reboot and all that. I'm not sure if I'm really interested in reading the remainder of this. I think I got the story I wanted, at least for right now, from the GIF. And I don't really... I'm not really experiencing any kind of great urge to to move forward with this, you know? So, I don't know. But, whatever. Your actual mileage on this may vary. I at least want to do a... I, I want to do at least one more issue. Which is to say issue number two, but... Eh, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to try to make it happen. Not making any promises. It's definitely on my wish list, but nothing is guaranteed. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me for right now. So, bye, everybody. I'll see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, 
and the number two. Dumbass. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.